All right, we're in Acts, the 23rd chapter this week. Thank you so much for clicking the play button and joining us as we are working our way through this uh, great book of the Bible. It is the sequel to the gospel record as we continue to follow uh, the work of Jesus, although it's not Jesus in person, but it is the work of Jesus through His church. They are serving as His uh, hands and His feet, and in particular, uh, one of the great servants of the Lord, the Apostle Paul, is who we're focusing on here in some of these final chapters. Jason, are you ready to jump into Acts 23? I'm legitimately excited, Josh. All right, so uh, this is a chapter that does have a lot of narrative to it, and we are in the midst of, of really kind of some real dramatic proceedings here these last couple of chapters, and, and really through the rest of the, the, the book. Um, and once again, we, we are starting at kind of a not very good chapter break. So let's actually just bump back up to verse 30 from the previous verse. Let's just remember Paul has been seized in Jerusalem. These Jews have accused him of bringing a Gentile into the temple, amongst other things. That's really just kind of the you know, accusation they're throwing out because they just, they just want, they want something done with him. In just a few minutes, we're going to see people that are just going to flat out say, hey, we're ready to kill the guy. Um, but um, thankfully, there is this Roman tribune, this commander, who's been able to kind of step in. And I do think maybe there's the providence of the Lord kind of working through that guy and is able to, uh, he's kind of serving as a buffer between Paul and what would have been, you know, certain d demise on, uh, on, by the hands of these Jews. Um, but finally, this officer has said, hey, uh, I'm just going to need to bring you before the Jewish council. They're going to have to figure out wh what's going on and how to take care of you. So verse 30 of the last chapter said, On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, uh, Lysias, the, this commander, he unbound him, and he commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. So it probably says something about, you know, kind of the rank of this uh, officer to be able to, you know, rustle up the Sanhedrin council here in a hurry, uh, you know, here right here at the beginning of the next day, and say, hey, you guys need to do something with this guy right away. And so, beginning of, verse of chapter 23, Paul is... I think I said this last week, but he's essentially now standing where Stephen once stood. And it is interesting that Paul is now standing before the very group that he used to work for. Hmm. I mean, he was kind yeah. of the mercenary for this very crew. Now, some of the faces may have changed by this point in time. We're talking, you know, probably some 20 to 25 years later, somewhere in that ballpark. Uh, but there may have been some of the same people uh, on that council who was there once upon a time. And now he's standing before them, not as someone ready to give a report of, hey, here's all the great things I've done against these Christians. No, he's now having to stand and give a defense for essentially why he is a Christian. That's essentially what all of this boils down to. So verse 1, that's a lot of introductory stuff to say. Verse 1, Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, <laughs> that's all Paul's able to say before he's about to receive a smack on the mouth. Um, but let's just sit for a second on, on what he says there in verse 1. Um, Paul says here that, and this is a, a, a kind of a, a note that Paul repeats again and again throughout his writings and throughout some of these defenses 
about having lived in good conscience. And there's a sense in which he's probably saying this to kind of just show, hey, I'm, I'm just like you guys. You know, what you guys are doing right now, I know that you're doing this in all good conscience. And Paul is able to say from a very honest place in his heart that everything I've done in my life up to this present moment, I have done it with a clear conscience. What I want to say about this, just kind of to, to kind of draw some, uh, just kind of a, a nice little application point here, is that Paul seems to speak highly of the role of the conscience. And, and the way that God has placed a conscience within human beings and human minds and human hearts. Um, I know that growing up, I heard lots of sermons that really almost made it sound like the conscience was bad. <laughs> yeah. You know, people would jump on Jiminy Cricket for singing that song about let your conscience be your guide. I heard preachers say, don't listen to that foolish cricket. Uh, he's wrong. Uh, you should never let your conscience be your guide. But yet there's a sense here in which Paul's saying, actually, your conscience can be your guide. Now, and I'm saying that, but I want to temper that by saying, yes, for the first chunk of Paul's life, his conscience was guiding him, but it was guiding him to do wrong. And what Mm -hmm. that indicates is that indicates that his conscience was just improperly set. Uh, The conscience in many ways I think is kind of like a wristwatch. You know, a watch is a great tool to have, but if it's not set correctly, if the time's not set properly, uh, it's it's actually going to work against you. You're going to be late for stuff. And you're going to have all kinds of problems. A compass, a compass that's not calibrated properly, it's going to point you in the wrong direction. Having said that, when you get a watch that is set properly or a compass that is calibrated properly, it's a wonderful tool. Mm-hmm. And Paul now, during this kind of this second act of his life, He's gotten his conscience calibrated correctly and it has served him as a powerful tool to help him, to let him know what's the right thing to do. And of course, the instrument that helps us to calibrate the conscience accordingly is the Word of God, the Bible. That's what we want to use. If we're using some other you know, instrument to, to set our conscience, it's probably going to be faulty. You know, we may stumble upon some right things, but uh, ultimately we want our conscience to be um, guided by the Word of God. And when it is, it is a wonderful tool. And, and Paul actually is going to say in other places, like for example in Romans chapter 14, if you're doing stuff that your conscience is telling you don't do, you shouldn't be doing that. Again, that, that, that's speaking of the conscience in a positive way. That's totally opposite of kind of the traditional uh, teaching that I know that I've heard uh, about the conscience, um, that the conscience can be a powerful thing. Paul says it, it's been a good thing for him. Yeah, and there's, there's obviously a lot of uh, aspects to this we have to consider. When we say one thing, we have to quickly you know, backpedal and say, qualify well, it. Yeah, yeah. Ex- exactly. I mean, we don't want to have our conscience seared with a hot iron, right? You know, and and we we don't want to be so callous to sin that we just continually, you know, I, I don't feel any shame in doing this. Um, obviously, it you know you can be so depraved that you get to the point where you don't have a, a conscience that's telling you that this is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, we we do have to temper that uh, absolutely. But you know that being said. If we are diligent in, in putting biblical principles into play in our lives, 
um, then that's how we're able to do that. It's, it's muscle memory. Yeah. You know, the more righteous and good things we do, that's what we're going to be thinking about more often, and that's what we're going to do. That's that's what our conscience becomes. There are moments where, like, you know, I'm not going to have a Bible like readily available to me. <laughs> But if my conscience has been trained by those biblical principles, like you said, it's kind of a, a, a it's a secret weapon, and it becomes muscle <laughs> yeah. memory for me in the moment when I need it. Because usually, uh, th- th- that's when our conscience is needed the most. Is kind of in those you know thick of the moment. We don't have a whole lot of time to think about this. It just needs to be the reactionary response when it's been trained properly. Yeah, it's like, especially those, we like to call them gray areas, Yeah, where it's like, I don't know, should I do this? Should I do this? And we don't have a whole lot of time to think, and so it's just like, okay, what does my spiritually trained mind exactly. think it, I need to do right now? Yep. Um, and that that's how we need to go with it. Now, I think this also helps, uh, you, you were talking about how, you know, the sincerity that Paul had even in the first part of his life, he was dead wrong in what he did. Sure. But he was very sincere about it. Yep. This, I think, helps to, to temper us and, and think, okay, if someone is sincere in what they believe, that do- doesn't necessarily mean they're okay. Um, right. And, and so that's, that's what we have to constantly come back to the Word and make sure that what we're doing is right. Um, now, I, I think I've heard that application out of this story more so than you know the other side of that yeah but i think what paul was trying to do here he was leaning more towards no guys what i've been doing in the past several years i'm doing this in good conscience yeah uh you know i am living as a christian you know i used to do you know be a pharisee and and do all this stuff but now i'm living as a christian and reaching out to these gentiles Mm because that's really what they were focused on. Um, and I'm doing that in good conscience. You yeah. know, I, I feel completely satisfied that that's what the Lord wants me to do. Um, as consistent as he was in phase one of his life, he was equally consistent in in this new phase of his life. Yeah. He, he was not the wishy-washy type. And, and I mean, sometimes you know, we, we know the right thing to do, but we fail to do it. That's a James 4 type mm-hmm. thing. Um, and so, you know, you got to give Paul credit there. Even when he was doing wrong, he was doing wrong 100%. Uh, you know, he, he thought that was right. You know, and that shows us, even if we meet someone who is completely adamant against the cause of Christ, they might be 100% sincere in what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So if we can give them the knowledge and, and help put them on the right track, imagine what they could do for the Lord. Yep. And that's exactly what happened with Paul. Yeah. We've t- it's been remarkable how many we've talked a lot about sincerity throughout the book of Acts. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a yeah. uh, an, an undercurrent theme throughout this, but we've we've gotten to see what real sincerity is, and and what it's what you know the necessary components are in order for a person not just yeah. to claim sincerity, but to genuinely be uh, a sincere person. And so Paul, that's, that's what he's saying here. Look, guys, I've been sincere throughout the entirety of my life. My conscience. Uh, has been clear, um, you know, every single step of the way. That does not endear him, maybe the way that he intended for the, <laughs> that statement to endear him to this audience, the Sanhedrin Council, these, the 70 plus one, these men who make up this group, because verse 2 says that the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Now, Let's get quickly kind of up to speed on who this Ananias is because 
if we were just reading the book of Acts by itself, uh, we might be kind of confused because this is <laughs> at least the third Ananias that we've yeah. met. This is not the same Ananias that we just got done reading about in chapter 22, who was a Jew that was of good reputation, who obviously had become a Christian, and Jesus then uses him to help uh, Paul obey the gospel. Uh, not that guy. He's also not the Ananias from chapter 5, uh, who was married to Sapphira because that guy is dead because he was a liar. Um, Probably ought to also say this is not as well uh, the same as Annas, mm -hmm. who was a high priest back during the time of Jesus. Uh, this is Ananias. Um, this particular guy, history talks about him a lot. Uh, there's lots of stuff written in Josephus and some of the other uh, writings of the first century. Uh, this guy, just to kind of summarize, was a jerk. <laughs> and and really, yeah. if, if if all we knew of him was verse two, uh, we probably could come could to that, that conclusion. Yeah, we could yeah. see that. Um, but he was just kind of well known for just his cruelty and just uh, what an uh, how ugly he was in 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 how he conducted himself. He was, we're told from history, he was a Roman sympathizing Sadducee. He was one of these high priests that had really been kind of appointed. Uh, and kind of got his position because of the Romans. Um, and um, so he, he maybe is kind of walking a fine line in how well he even gets along with the rest of the members of the council. Uh, but I do want to emphasize, he is a Sadducee. Um, and Because that's going to come up here in, in just a second when we talk about kind of the, the makeup of, of, of this group here. Um, but this guy is, and he actually meets kind of a, a, a pretty bad demise. Uh, AD 66, I think the records, uh, historical records talk about how he's assassinated uh, by some uh, folks who are zealots very much against the Roman government. And this type of guy who's a Roman sympathizer, he's not going to get along with you know, Jewish zealots. Uh, so he's going to meet his demise uh, eventually. But right here, he doesn't like Paul's tone. He doesn't like the, the stuff that Paul's saying here. And so he just orders, smack this guy on the mouth. We probably ought to stress, because uh, Luke doesn't tell us, we're not actually told that Paul does get struck on the mouth. Uh, maybe he was, and Luke just doesn't tell us. Or maybe he was ordered to, to, he ordered Paul to be struck on the mouth. And then before that actually happens, Paul maybe then says what he says in the very <laughs> next verse. Before we look at that, anything you want to say about Ananias here? Uh, no, I'm good. Yeah, there's just, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know if you wanted to defend the guy or... <laughs> yeah. uh, I am not a sympathizer. Okay. Uh, so verse 3, uh, he's told to smack Paul on the mouth. Verse 3, then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? <laughs> All right. So we're here talking about Ananias is kind of acting pretty big for his britches and ordering Paul to be smacked in the mouth. Um, Paul kind of, you know, bold here. I guess that's a, a word we would use that's here. One word. Amongst other things. Um, part of me wants to say that, once again, this is somewhat Christ-like. You know, certainly when he uses the term there, you're a whitewash wall, immediately makes me think of Matthew chapter 23, those woes that Jesus pronounces against the Pharisees, and, you know, mm -hmm. woe to you all. You're like a bunch of whitewashed tombs. Um, you know, so 
I want to say that Paul's Christ-like here. I'm not entirely sure, though, that this is Paul's most shining moment here. Um, there's several things here that, that maybe just kind of jump out at us here. This seems somewhat possibly disrespectful on, on Paul's part, what he says here, especially considering who he's talking to, the position this guy has. Um, and yes, even though in reality uh, the, the position of high priest at this point in time it really is kind of more of a figurehead than anything. doesn't really carry any kind of real power. He is still in a position of, of authority. And Paul is the very guy who in Romans 13 chapter would talk about, you know, our responsibilities to be subject to, to governing authority. So, okay, um, something about this seems maybe a little bit out of line with, with what Paul would, would later write. Uh, so there's lots of different possible explanations for why Paul would kind of lash out at here and uh, at this guy and, and say these things. Uh, and there's several of them. For, for one, it's possible that maybe the council, as I mentioned earlier, was kind of convened so hurriedly that it's possible maybe the high priest was not adorned in his normal garb, the, the, the garments and the hat and all that sort of stuff. And so it's possible Paul didn't even recognize who it was that was talking to him here. He may have just thought he was, you know, one of the other members and not necessarily the high priest. It's possible as well, Paul maybe didn't even know who the high priest was. He's been out of pocket for a little while. He's not been in Jerusalem um, for, for, you know, a little bit. Um, so he may have not even been familiar with who Ananias was. It's possible, some have suggested, and this is kind of maybe even hinted at in some of Paul's epistles, that maybe Paul didn't have good eyesight and that maybe if he was adorned in all the high priestly garb, Paul just couldn't really see him well enough to know. Um, you know, Paul talks in the Galatian letter about how the Galatians would have been willing to pluck out their eyes for him. And so some have wondered, is that maybe an implication that they knew that he had poor eyesight? Don't know. You know, you see what large letters I've written to you, <laughs> right. those sorts of things. Uh, some think maybe this is Paul being just sarcastic, that he does know this is the high priest, and this is just kind of his way of saying, you know, I can't believe a high priest would act like this, you whitewash wall. And as someone who is a fan of sarcasm, <laughs> uh, I, 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 I could buy some of that as well. Um, there is also just finally the, the real possibility that Paul just lashed out here and it just was a mistake. And it was just wrong on his part. And it's very possible, especially considered in verse 5, what Paul himself is going to say, that he, he, just, he just did the wrong thing here. Um, and I'm pretty sympathetic with him if that is the case. And that's probably where I'm inclined to, to lean most of all because I know how many times in the heat of the moment somebody, you know, says something, or in this case, you know, getting ready to do something physically, and yeah, I just let my tongue take over. Um, and I think if that's the case, that's just Luke. One of the ways Luke is helping to humanize Paul for us. Paul definitely was guided by the Holy Spirit in you know, his preaching and in the things that he wrote. But that certainly does not mean that the Holy Spirit led Paul to do you know, every action or every word that ever came out of his mouth and made sure that it was always the right thing. Paul still was a creature of free will, and that means that Paul would have had shortcomings. And so we're getting kind of maybe possibly some of the warts 
you know, <laughs> that, um, you know, really just kind of help to validate the scriptures even more, you know, that we see our heroes, but we see them in, in realistic lights that from time to time, and they, they, they messed up. Mm. What do you think? Well, to be honest, I'm split about 50-50. Uh, I've, I've looked at this a lot. Uh, a lot of a lot of you listening, you, you didn't hear the conversation Josh and I had off air a few days ago uh, about trying to work through this. And, and since then, I've tried to look at, at things and get a good grasp. I've come to the conclusion, I don't know. Yeah. Because, I mean, things like when Jesus tells the apostles, don't worry about what you're going to say when you're in front of the, those in authority and that sort of thing. I'll give you the words. It's like okay, well, what exactly does he mean by that? Does he mean every word when he's in when they're in front of any kind of authority? Um, you know, what about the you know in verse three when Paul is addressing the high priest there, Ananias? He he mentions, "Do you sit to try me according to the law?" So he it seems to indicate he knows that he's in some sort of judgment authority, mm-hmm. um, which. You know, definitely the high priest would have that. I don't know if if he assumed he was, I don't know, some other type of um, high-ranking council member there. Uh, I don't know. That that's hard to know. And you know, Ananias was probably somewhere. And this is this is uh, something I should have looked into more. But you know, I, I don't see Ananias as just rising up out of nowhere. You know, taking the world by storm and becoming high priest. You know, he he was probably at least in the background somewhere. So I I don't know if Paul would have been aware of that or not. Yeah. Um. But then again, I see where you're coming from too. You know, we we see that the way that Paul responds. He was a very sarcastic person. <laughs> Read Galatians. Yeah. And you'll you'll see that. And yeah. so, uh, it, I mean, it. The fact remains, Ananias was not acting like a high priest. He was not. There's no doubt about that. That's, and, yeah. and I probably should have said that too. That it, you know, all right. Even if Paul is you know acting out of turn here, let, let's not you know make any mistake about it. The high priest was acting out of turn as well. And that's not to suggest that well, you know, if somebody does a bad thing, well, you can mm. retaliate yeah, with yeah, more yeah. bad stuff. No, right. But um, yeah, that guy was not conducting himself in a priestly manner. Right, exactly. So my my five minutes of rambling gets us to the point of, I don't know. Yeah. It could go either way there. Um, and, and that's one of those things. When we study the Bible, sometimes we do get to things where it's, it's not completely clear yeah. uh, of one way or the other. You ask me again in a week, by the time this comes out, you know, and by the time that you are listening to this, wherever yeah. you're listening, I might come down on another side. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, we would certainly, uh, you know, covet any uh, other possibilities or, or further clarity on kind of, you know, what's happening here, and you know, was Paul just was he just wrong, or um, you know, w- what exactly is uh, going on here? Let's actually look at four and five because we haven't it really needs to be all took together, mm-hmm. you know. So Paul kind of smarts off verse four. Those who stood by said, "Would you revile God's high priest?" And Paul said, verse five. I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And that, of course, is taken from Exodus, the 22nd chapter, verse 28, uh, which, you know, here's Paul kind of showing, hey, look, you know, even though I'm a Christian, uh, I, know my, I know my Old Testament scriptures, I know what the law of Moses says, and, you know, part of that business of living in all good conscience 
means that you know I, I'm going to be aware of what God's law says and live according to that. And so as a, a man who was a devout Jew, yes, I absolutely, I would never want to knowingly break that law. Uh, and I think Paul may be here, um, he, he, he may be indicating, he may just be claiming genuinely, sincerely, I did not know that he was mm-hmm. the high priest for whatever reason, did not know. And if I had known, I wouldn't have said those things. Um, you know, it does beg the question, well, if this was just some other random person, you know, would it be okay to, to say it to other random people who aren't high priests? <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, again, Jesus said some damn, straightforward, harsh, harsh things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so Paul here just kind of acting in the same spirit of Christ uh, is 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 kind of striking back here, but um, th- there is there there is here maybe kind of the overarching thing here is there is um, a a strength that that Paul is demonstrating here in his defense mm-hmm. and wanting to be given a fair hearing. And that's it, what he wanted in the very beginning, you know, when Lysias comes and takes him and tries to pull him away from the crowd. Hey, if you just give me a chance to just talk to these people, and let me, if I can just get a few minutes to speak to them, uh, I, I think it would do well. And right here, that's all he's wanting as well. He just wants a fair hearing before, you know, these people who are, you know, considered the elite uh, of, of the Jewish people. Um, and he's not getting it, you know, mm-hmm. right out of the gate. Like I said, if, if this is all he got to say before the mouth smacking took place, that would be pretty disheartening. You know, you get to say one sentence, and all of a sudden they're calling to smack this guy in the mouth. Uh, that would be that would be uh, hard to deal with. And like I said, I'm I'm sympathetic toward toward Paul, at least in this particular instance. Uh, there's lots of there's lots of moments in Paul's life where, man, it's hard for me to sympathize, uh, in the sense that like I just can't do the things that he does. Yeah, I'm just I'm amazed at him. He seems like a superhero to me, but here in this moment, yeah, I, I kind of get it. You know? Yeah, um, and we got to be careful with the application of that because it's like, you know, if someone smacks you, are you okay with you know calling them a whitewashed wall and and that yeah. sort of thing? Yeah, um, you know, Paul was in front of the high priest. And the high priest was obviously not acting as he should. He was being very counterproductive to the cause of Christ, mm-hmm. um, you know, completely going against what God uh, had in mind. And so, uh, Paul, you know, it, in whatever aspect, um, you know, whether it's out of turn or not, he was making an example out of this guy um, who should have known better. And and God takes you know very seriously when his leadership doesn't do what they need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's there's more to it than just, you know, this random guy, you know, said, you know, somebody else should hit me. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, this is a big deal. There's even, a, we could go on a whole additional tangent about, at this point in, in history, um, is the high priest role... Is it really even something God even wants anymore? You know, by this point in time, right. you know, the covenant of Christ is in full force and effect, and so uh, this guy's nothing more than just, you know, he's just playing dress up. You know, we <laughs> could, we, could, we could suggest, but uh, regardless, we we've noticed that Judaism did not just immediately die the moment that 
uh, you know, Christ was raised from the dead, there was this period of time, and there's still going to be even more time before um, at least kind of the final, God's way of kind of putting the final death nail in Judaism in AD 70 when he destroys uh, the temple in Jerusalem. But um, still, uh, lots of questions, and we may never know all of the answers here, but... Um, if nothing else, I do. We, we we get we get some 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 images of Paul's humanity. There's another thing interesting about this chapter. We're going to notice this here uh, in just a moment, and then and then even a little bit further down, we get information about Paul's family mm-hmm. that we prior to this I don't remember us being told anything about family members, yeah. and we get at least two different mentions of family here going forward. So verse six. Now when Paul perceived that one part of the council was Sadducees and the other Pharisees. He cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So the first thing that, I'm going to just keep talking about the family thing really quickly, is there is the mention, Paul says, I'm a son of Pharisee. So that's an indication that either his father was a Pharisee or his grandfather was was a Pharisee or I mean, great grandfather, um, and then here a little bit, a little bit further down, when we get to verse uh, sixteen, we're going to note that Paul had a sister, didn't know yeah. that before, <laughs> uh, and then also he has a nephew. Again, didn't know that. Uh, those are probably the, really the only family notes that we get about Paul. Um, but again, I, I appreciate Luke including those things. It, again, it kind of brings Paul down to a level that I'm able to relate to a little bit better. He's, it makes him more human in my eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, but Paul sees, it says that Luke says that he perceived that the council is made up of partial, partially Pharisees and partially Sadducees. And we tend to think that Pharisees and Sadducees just got along because all of them hated Jesus. <laughs> but the truth is, they really didn't get along. These are completely different factions. I mean, there's a reason that they have different names and you know, um, you know, uh, operated differently, and that's because they, they, they were not on the same page about things. Uh, we've noticed in, in previous chapters about how you know, Sadducees did not believe in angels, they did not believe in the resurrection, and that seems to be the point that Paul's keying in on here uh, in his statements here. Um, but the first thing by Paul identifying himself as a Pharisee, okay, well that may potentially kind of make it look like, well, some of those guys, the other Pharisees on the panel, well, they're going to kind of favor him a little bit. And all of us over here on the Sadducee side, well, well, we just especially don't like this guy. And then when he throws out this mention here of, uh, you know, the reason I'm here today is because of my hope of the resurrection of the dead. Oh, <laughs> once again, you're talking about something that would just set the Sadducees off, something that uh, they just vehemently denied, were opposed to it. They very famously had come to Jesus in Mark the 12th chapter and, you know, asked that big hypothetical question about, you know, the woman and has all these husbands and whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection if there even is such a resurrection. Um, so Paul lobs these things out there and uh, it, it is going to create uh, what we would recognize as it's going gonna, it's gonna to kind of split the panel. It's going to split the... Uh, the uh, the jury that he's in front of. Um, I lobbed this to you off air uh, prior to this. Yeah. I realized that the text says in verse 8 that when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and one part was Pharisees, that he says this. And, and we could read that in the sense that Paul said this 
just because he's wanting to blow the whole thing up. He's wanting to just throw a wrench and essentially have a hung jury, you know, and, and so his you know buys him some more time. I'm just not fully persuaded that that's the reason he says this. You know, Paul's always very intentional with the things that he he he, he teaches and preaches, and that's what he's doing. He's, he's teaching. He talks about, you know, I have a hope of the resurrection of the dead. That that's him doing evangelistic sorts of stuff. And I just see, think it's Paul just seizing the opportunity of the people that are in front of him and who's before him to be able to just try to say something uh, that might seize their attention long enough for him to give an explanation for the hope that lies within him. Um, I just don't, like I said, I, I just don't buy fully that Paul just, uh, you know, is, is trying here to uh, just you know, get out of the situation. I, I think he's actually just taking advantage of, of, of what's before him. What say you? Well, uh, this is another thing that I'm about to split 50-50 <laughs> on, too. Because you think about both sides of this, uh, either the side of Paul is just saying this to disrupt the process, get out of it. Or Paul is saying this in order to um, you know, have an audience and be able to speak you know, without getting hit or whatever. Um, you know, maybe there was some of both in there. Because, maybe, yeah. Because you realize he, these people had plenty of opportunities to hear before. Right. And um, you know, they should have already listened and paid attention. By this point, he might have realized, look, I'm getting nowhere with these guides. Um, you know, in, in other places we've seen where he goes to the Jews first at the synagogue, he, he'll like shake the dust off his feet at their clothes or whatever at them and then say, okay, I'm moving on to the Gentiles because you aren't listening. Mm -hmm. Maybe this was like just the, the, the great escape plan for that just because it's like, okay, you guys aren't listening, so uh, you know we're not getting anywhere with this trial. This is, is going going nowhere quick. Maybe I need to do this, but I can see this as you know he saw it was going nowhere, and uh, he's creating a little diversion, but with the hopes too that he's able to at least reach some of the audience yeah. or or connect with some of them. Um, so I, I don't know that it has to be one or the other. Maybe, yeah. maybe it is a, a split approach. Yeah. Um, and just just seeing what happens. Yeah. See, and I, I fed you this stuff a week before because I wanted you to come in with just totally <laughs> opposite thoughts, and you 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 walked right down the middle on both of them. I do. I, I don't know who owns this fence. I know you we know. get <laughs> the best episodes are the ones where we where we don't agree on stuff, and we're we're not. Totally disagreeing on anything just yet. Sixty-three percent, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's it, it, it is it does it does result in, in being kind of a a, a dividing tactic. He, mm. He's pitting the council against themselves by 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 this statement, uh, and that's evident in verse seven when he said this. A dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And so there's those insights that we get about, about some of those groups. Verse 9, Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up, and they contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Verse 10, And when the dissension became violent, Imagine this, wow. <laughs> There's, this is, it, it's hard not to read this and not think about 
uh, like modern politics. Mm. There's yeah. definitely some politicking here, even in the council. Even though it's not the Bible, the point of the Bible to tell us about all of that. But I think it's pretty evident there was some political one-upsmanship, and um, and we're living in the thick of that here in the United States uh, today. Um, and the fact that it says that it become violent. We're nearing that here in America, are we not? I mean, yeah. people getting violent over their political allegiances. Um, when the dissension became violent, the tribune, the commanding officer, Lysias, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, he commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him away from among them by force and to bring him into the barracks. And so, um, you know, it, obviously it was getting... You know, to say that it was getting heated would be a, a huge understatement because it says that he was afraid Paul was going to get just torn to shreds uh, in the middle of all of this. Um, there's not a whole lot that, that I remember, um, and we may I may get corrected before we get to chapter 28. There's actually not a whole lot said uh, about uh, the Sanhedrin Council. Uh, really the rest of the book. Obviously, there's going to be this plot here in, mm-hmm. in, in the last part of this chapter, uh, but as far as them you know, really being able to kind of do much and, and flex any kind of power, uh, not any other mention of it after this. And I don't know if all of this you know, caused it to just blow up and it never was the same ever again, but uh, still, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's chaotic. And... Yeah, I try to just think about putting myself in Paul's shoes and just the, all right, we've already went through kind of two or three phases of this and he's fixing to be shuttled off to the next phase. Um, just what a whirlwind life he's he's living and he's in the middle of. And I say that to kind of preface what then verse 11 is going to tell us mm-hmm. about the Lord's going to come to him and, and kind of give him some reassurance that even in the midst of this tornado of just wild stuff, I'm with you, and things are going to be okay. Um, what do you want to say, though, about um, the remainder there of that, that paragraph about the blowing up of the of the party? A lot, but I'll try to keep it brief. So <laughs> the the rest of the book of Acts, you know, one thing, we're he's not going to be in Jerusalem anymore. And right. so, like, as far as how much the council is going to be involved, they at least send some delegation um, maybe yeah. even a couple times in a couple a couple different spots. And so maybe there's some of that. We really don't see much, but right. you're right about that. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, regardless of what Paul's intentions were, I don't know. I, I see this as getting a, little, a lot more out of control than even he intended for it to. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, with the whole, you know, being almost torn to pieces. That, that's kind of unfortunate. Yeah, um, yeah but... You look at, you see the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Yeah. And how could they, at, in, at one second, want to kill him? The next minute, say, oh, we don't find anything wrong with him. Yeah. You know, maybe an angel spoke to him. It's like, come on. Yeah. Like, that's all he had to do. Um, this shows that their focus was not on truth, was not on um, what he was actually teaching, but it was just, you know, uh, the the party lines, you know, yep. that was it. Yep. This is what happens when we make politics more important yes. than religion. Yes. We we put certain issues and certain topics above what it means to serve the Lord. And when we do that, 
we we will align ourselves with people that we should never align ourselves with. Yeah. Um, now, I, I say that from my perspective. The Pharisees probably should have aligned themselves with Paul. But if you think about what they were doing... That is ridiculous. It really was just a. It wasn't. It was just a blind allegiance to. Oh, he said Pharisee. Okay, he's on our team. Yeah, you know exactly. Uh, it, it, as long as it was not, you know, the, if I'm blue, you know, as as long as they don't say red, well then, hey, I'm 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 good, and yeah. or, and vice versa. You know, if Paul had said, you know, I'm a Sadducee and I'm a son of Sadducees, well, the Sadducees probably would have done the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that is the way that that modern politi- politicization tends to work today to where there's just almost this blind allegiance to, um, you know, a color or to, you know, uh, the the elephant or the donkey um, or a a name, a title, than there is to actually the substance and, and again, truth. That's that's what my allegiance ought to be to, is to, to truth, not to this or to to that. Uh, And this is us not, and Jason and I are probably... You know, probably not the best people to be talking about politics because uh, we we really don't have a whole lot of uh, allegiances to uh, political yeah. ideologies, and um, but it's because there's just there's it's it's fraught with all kinds of of troubles, and here's kind of a first century example of that, mm. and it's still happening two thousand years later. But Josh, aren't the Pharisees much more closer to the ideology that God would have because they believe in the resurrection and they believe in angels and spirits and like so wouldn't it be much better to be aligned with the Pharisees even though they're bad in some areas? Is that I, I see think, what you did there. <laughs> I, not you're so subtle. Saying, right? You're saying the Pharisees are the Republicans of the first century. Ooh, we went there. <laughs> so I think Another aspect, bringing up what we were talking about before, maybe Paul's intentions were to out everybody. Yeah. Just to show, hey, listen, none of you are doing the right thing, and none of you are are being righteous right now. That's right. They all come across looking bad. Yeah. And so, and so maybe that was his intention um, of of just ousting all of them. Yeah. In their stance, he does. He he, he does. The, the Pharisees just come across looking like complete hypocrites here, uh, and the Sadducees just you know come across looking like a bunch of like a bunch of idiots. <laughs> um, so uh, so at the conclusion of all of this, again, there's just this storm of just wackiness going on all around. Verse eleven. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, "Take care." Well, actually, can we just just sit and appreciate? the words there, that the Lord stood by him. Mm. You know, Paul later on in the letter to Timothy, which is later in his life, when he really had been abandoned by pretty much everybody else, he's going to make this statement. And he's not referring to this, but he is. I think he's just talking about how time and again, all these other people abandoned me, but the Lord stood by me. Mm. Even when, when people who... Um, should have been there for me, weren't there. Um, the Lord was with me. And that ought to provide us, you know, some measure of, of comfort. I realize, you know, we, we sometimes, I think sometimes we give people who are lonely a hard time and we say, well, you know, you've always got the Lord. And, and that's true. And, and, and people still desire human companionship. Mm-hmm. But having said that, at the end of the day, the Lord does still stand by His people. 
And that is just incredibly comforting and powerful. And on this particular occasion, it's not just that he stood by him, but he says to Paul, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And so this uh, desire that Paul has to ultimately go to Rome, um, there's the assurance given here, yeah, you're going. You're going to make it. Uh, and so if Paul, you know, in the midst of all this chaos going around him and he nearly being torn to shreds, maybe at this point might have started to think, oh, man, I don't know if I'm going to get out of here. Here was Jesus, uh, the Lord, telling him, yeah, you're going you're gonna to be okay. I'm going to make sure. Now, he's not going to get to go to Rome probably in the way that he thought he was going to get <laughs> to go to Rome. Yeah. But you are going to get to go to Rome, and you are going to do the very thing that I've appointed you to do, and that is to testify uh, about me before before the Romans. So so take courage, take heart. Yeah, that that's so encouraging. And I, I think that um, we need to look at this verse more and, and yeah. think about that. Because, I mean, we we don't think about that as often. And I'm, I'm speaking for myself. I, I, I don't know. But um, you think about if, you, if you've had a tough day, tough week, tough month, tough year, whatever, the Lord is always with you, and yeah. and even if if you don't see Him, feel Him, whatever, we just take courage in that and know that that's there. Um, and again, when things aren't going like we expect them to, even when the Lord's with us, you know, maybe we're going to Rome, but not in the way that we expect. Yeah. Now this sets up an interesting thing. Um, you know, this this idea of what does it mean to trust God, because. God, Jesus directly gave him the statement, you are going to go to Rome. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what would we do with that? You know, Jesus tells me, you are going to go to Rome for sure. Mm-hmm. I believe the Lord. You know, he is not lying to me. I know I am going to go to Rome. But what happens when troubles come along the way? You know, what what do I do with that? Um, do I just sit back idly and, and say, well, Lord will take care of it. The Lord will will guide me through. Uh, like, how how do we handle that? And I, I think we're going to see some of that um, unfold. Yeah, it, it, there needs to. There, and yeah, and what we're going to see is that no, I, I don't just lay back and just okay, just going to go with the flow and whatever happens. happens. No, there's some cooperation that needs to take place there, and Paul's <laughs> going to have to cooperate within the kind of the ever changing circumstances uh, that's ultimately going to get him there. Um, verse twelve, when it was day. The Jews made a plot, and they bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Okay, so we've just <laughs> we've just immediately, you know, went from, all right, we're going to try to you know, have some talks and try to have some discussions and then maybe even kind of go through a formal trial to now we're just jumping all the way to DEFCON 5 and let's, we're just going to kill this guy. Maybe <laughs> this kid, let's figure out how to kill him. Verse 13, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. You know, to mention that there's 40, I mean, that ought to tell us just how significant it was, how how much Paul was hated by, uh, you know, it wasn't just, you know, the plot of, of, of one or two. And we got 40 people who are going to, they're going to bound themselves with an oath. Verse 14, they went to the chief priests and the elders and they said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. And so the, the plot is that, hey, what, what us 40 guys need is we need you council guys 
to pretend that, okay, well, we're, we're going to do this trial thing, you know, again, we're going to do it more more fairly, we're going to you know, get, do, go through it more thoughtfully and carefully this time, and while you're in the process of getting him brought down, then we're going to jump him and we're going to assassinate him right there. I want to call our attention to the, the wording that they use in verse 14. We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until Paul's dead. Uh, the word uh, bound is the word anathema. And it is a word that's used, if you, especially if you're reading from a King James, you'll actually just see the word anathema used uh, in your New Testament later. And the word just means devoted to complete destruction. And then the word is actually used again. Uh, we've bound ourselves by an oath. So that actually kind of there's the double use of that word. So in other words, we've anathematized ourselves to an anathema. In other words, we have willfully cursed ourselves so that we can become a curse against Paul. And I just point that out because these guys are will. I mean, this, this shows how the, the mind of, of, of some of these Jewish people had, had gotten to. They were willing to violate their own law in order to justify themselves. Uh, they really think in their heart of hearts that they are, they're actually offering service to God. You know, we're doing this in the name of the Lord. We're willing to do this. We're willing to, to, to kind of go down, you know, almost kind of make ourselves a martyr uh, in a sense. Um, the specific oath here that, you know, we've promised we're not going to eat food until we've killed Paul, uh, one of two things happened ultimately <laughs> with that. Either A, they broke the oath, or right. B, they starved to death. <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah, because they don't end up killing Paul. Spoiler alert. Mm, uh, no, so one of those two things had to take place. But again, there's you know it's just kind of ridiculous. You know that, and we saw this with with, with Jesus. You know, you read the story of Jesus and how just kind of how quickly things advance. You know, I'm I am always just it, it bewilders me how fast that process unfolded in the life of Jesus. You know. On the night, he's betrayed, he's arrested, he's taken through two different trials, one by the Jews, one by the Romans, three different parts to each of those. He's scourged, he's crucified, he's put in a tomb all in the span of about 15 hours. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. But it just shows how people can just, you know, turn on a dime just like this when your mind gets, you know, fixed on something that you are just so opposed to, just so hardened against the truth this is what's possible. Yeah. Man, I wonder how many of these people were part of the Pharisees that, that cried out, we, we find nothing wrong with this man. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, but you, know, you think this is, I don't know, almost worse in some ways um, than what they did with Jesus because, you know, one, they committed themselves to the Lord to kill his servant. Um, but two, they ask the council to lie for them. Yeah. You know, and everybody's okay with it. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah. 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 We'll, we'll be dishonest. That's okay. Yeah. Again, we're, 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 we're willing to break the very law that we're, you know, so strongly trying to defend. We're willing to do that in order, again, to, to, to justify ourselves. Yeah. And that, that just, it blows my mind. The lengths we will go and the sins we will commit to try to prove ourselves righteous. Yeah. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. 
Well, it does seem that, that it's not stated here specifically, but it does seem like the, the council probably consented that, yeah, okay, this is what we'll do. However, here's the, the foil in all this. Turns out to be uh, a little boy. Um, and and, I, and this is one of those cases where I think we see that God is able to work not just through miraculous means. Think about Peter the night that he was in prison. All right, God sends an angel to get Peter out on that occasion. And on this occasion, God could have done that same thing. Could have miraculously sent, of, you know, sent an angel and could have you know, got him out of the, the custody and did all that in a snap of a finger. Instead, on this occasion, God chooses to just use natural means, working through his providence, and in this case, working through Paul's nephew. So verse 16, Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. Just little I picture he's like a kid, maybe a teenager, mm. just happens to be somewhere in proximity, and especially the fact that he's a maybe a, 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 a boy. You know, they don't think about the fact that he's overhearing what they're saying. Yeah. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. That probably is good indication to us that even though Paul is in custody, visitors are still uh, allowed to come to him. Verse 17, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and he brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, this is the young man, Paul's nephew, talking, These Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But don't be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who've bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him and now they are ready waiting for your consent. Actually, I'm going to take that back. I'm not sure this was a little boy because uh, he's pretty detailed in his <laughs> recollection here. <laughs> Might Probably not be at a least a teen, At least a teenager. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's, he's, he's good with detailing the, uh, the plot here. Yeah. Um, so verse 22, the tribune dismissed the young man charging him Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. And so uh, this young, unnamed nephew of Paul, uh, you know, kind of serves as a kind of a minor hero in, in Paul's story. And uh, again, kind of the Lord is able to use these different uh, pieces. He's, he's been able to use this tribune, uh, this commanding officer, uh, I think in some ways to, to protect Paul. Uh, and now here this young man is being used to, to spare Paul again a little while longer in order to be able to get him to, to the next place that he needs to go. What do you want to say about, about all that? I mean, just the thing that, and I uh, already brought it up and we talked about it a little bit, but you know, when, when God gives us a promise, and it looks like something is going to stand in the way of the promise. What do we do with it? What does it mean to trust in the Lord? Mm -hmm. um, why did Abraham and Sarah get rebuked so much for, you know, God told Abraham, you're going to have a son. And then didn't really give him any other instructions. Mm -hmm. And so then they got nervous and they were like, well, you know, use Sarah's maid and, you know, go that way. And God was not happy with that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when are we overstepping our bounds and showing that we're not trusting the Lord and taking things into our own hands? And when are we trusting the Lord by doing things? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a hard distinction sometimes. Um, but you got to think, one, if I have to commit a sin to accomplish what I think the Lord's will is, I'm probably not doing it right. Mm-hmm. 
Um, there's there's something wrong there. Um, but you also think if God has promised me something and he's given me the means in which to accomplish that purpose, I should probably use those. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I should probably take action on what he's given me to do so that way I can accomplish that will because that, that looks like what he wants me to do. Um, you know, it's not just I want to throw my hands up in the air. Well, Jesus, take the wheel. You know, you, you got it. Take care of it. You know, nephew of mine, just keep your mouth shut. God's, God's got it. You know, that's not it. Right. No, um, sometimes trusting in the... I, I heard this, this quote the other day. I, I don't remember who said this, but sometimes we try to limit God's power uh, in, in that we, we think He only works through miracles and what you alluded to earlier. Yeah. You know, God is, is much stronger and smarter than that. You know, He doesn't have to work through miracles. He can work through the actions of people. You know, and in a lot of cases, it's... It's even more amazing to me. I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I w- there's lots of miracles in the Bible that I would have loved to have seen, and I would have been amazed by them. But in many ways, you know, when when God's able to work through His providence through natural means, man, it just makes you even more amazed by like the wisdom and and how He was able to, um, you know, chose to do it that way and, and orchestrate and see to it that the right people were in the right place at the right time and. Uh, it's no less. It doesn't make us any less in awe of God for mm-hmm. God to work providentially. Um, except I'm not trying to, de- to diminish miracles. And by the same token, I don't want to diminish God's providence. It all makes us just stand in awe of just how awesome He is. Yeah. Amen. And, and so Paul shouldn't look at this situation, and I don't think he does, but uh, he shouldn't look at this situation and... Uh, you know, there, there are two opposite extremes there. Either, okay, I'm not going to do anything. God's going to take care of it. You know, boom, miracle. But he shouldn't look at this either and say, well, look how smart I am. I, yeah. I, I took my nephew here and I, I orchestrated this. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not about that either. You know, we recognize the Lord's power in, in working however he does. I can picture Paul after, after the nephew coming and telling this. I can picture Paul stopping right there and praying and saying, thank you, Lord, for... For, yeah. for sending my nephew to do that. Right, right. You know? Amen. Um, so, uh, so thankfully, the you know the the officer here, Lysias, he takes it seriously. You know, and, and and that probably was a little bit different. You know, think of especially about how younger people in first century times how they were thought of. They really weren't thought of. You know, as as being all that important. And so, for a you know presumably a younger person to come and tell this information to Lysias. Uh, he's kind of taking a little bit of a risk, but it does. It, it, it must say something about how. Um, well, maybe a couple things. One, that Lysias is looking for a, a way to get out of this situation because, yeah. you know, Lysias was was this close to making a big mistake himself in scourging mm-hmm. Paul in the previous chapter, um, and so um, he's looking for an out here. But also the the uh, just the validity of the story of the young man. So verse 23, here's Lysias' action. Then he called two of the centurions and he said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. That would be 9 p.m. on Jewish time. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So, I mean, he's put together essentially a small army here <laughs> yeah. uh, to be able to get Paul out and to make sure that he's protected, going to take him to Caesarea. We're talking 60 miles or so outside of Jerusalem. Um, and really to get him to territory where 
um, the Jewish, the, the presence of a Jewish ambush would be much less possible. <laughs> the other thing that he sends along, though, in verse 25, is this letter that he writes. And so he wrote this letter to this effect, verse 26, Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there was a plot, that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. It is interesting, he doesn't mention anything about how I nearly scourged the guy. <laughs> uh, they conveniently left that out. Yeah. Um, but everything else he says in it is, is truthful. Um, and so, hey, and it's not just, I don't, I don't take it that he's just like just trying to just pass the buck off. Um, I, I, I don't know. There's, I, there's some admirable qualities about this guy. I've actually kind of grown to like him over these last couple of chapters, and he's kind of wanting to do things properly and orderly. That very much was the Roman way. You know, Romans were just so opposed to, you know, disorder and mobs and those sorts of things, and this guy's all about preserving that. Um, and so I need to get him somewhere where he can have an unbiased and, and fair hearing, put him before uh, Felix, uh, which you know the hope is is that he wouldn't necessarily be you know persuaded one way or, or, or the other by this, uh, and states there at the end of verse 30 that um, there's also it's going to be required for these people who got it out for him, you know, hey, they have to present their case and they're going to have to you know say why this guy is deserving of death or whatever else they're wanting to do to him. Uh, what do you want to say about? Here. Finally, I can disagree with you about something. Do so, um, I okay, okay, I'll I'll agree with most of what you said, but there's an aspect of his letter that he writes where one over flattery, which I mean, I, I guess you would. You, he's you know, Felix is a more high-ranking official, and mm -hmm. so I guess there would be some of that. But the order of the details that he gives isn't quite what happened. He, he, he was painting himself in, in a light that made him look a lot better than he actually was. He's covering his hide a little bit, for sure. <laughs> yeah. and, and yes, he, 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 he does... He does he's not shy about painting himself as being kind of a hero here. Yeah, it's like, oh, I found out he was a Roman citizen, so I rushed into the rescue and swooped him yeah. up out of the jaws of death. Yeah. Um, no, he he did take him out. That's true. And he did find out that he was a Roman citizen when I was about to scourge him. But yeah. you know, it some of those details were a little off in, in as far as how much the, the timing was. Um, and I think that, that sometimes we look at things like this and we're like, well, that's not a big deal. You know, he's just painting the story a little bit differently. He's all the facts are there. They just might just be rearranged a little bit. We have to be careful. Left some stuff out too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Left out some key details. Uh, and, and sometimes we would say things like, well, everything I said was truthful. If they took it the wrong way, it's their fault. Yeah. It's okay. Come on now. Yeah. Uh, when we are intentionally trying to paint ourselves in a better light, make yeah. us look better than we actually were. That shows a couple things about us. One, we're willing to be dishonest, or at least uh, we want people to think of us in a different way. And so that means we care more about what people think of us than we do, uh, you know, being 
strict, you know, holding to the absolute truth of, of what happened. Um, and so there's a lot of self-preservation that goes on. And I think we do this all the time. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes even, like, we have passages that talk about we need to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another, you mm -hmm. know, James 5. Um, <clears throat> sometimes I think even when we do that, though, we can leave out some details and it's like, well, I don't want them to think that I'm really bad. Yeah. So let me let me try to paint this in a way that, you know, I'm confessing some things, but I'm not like a terrible person. I always think of people, in, 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 and I understand there's a reason for this, but there's something that seems less than when, for example, someone comes forward during an invitation, a, a Christian, and says that they want to confess sin, and they'll kind of just talk in maybe generic, mm. broad terms of, well, I've just not been what I ought to be. Mm. Okay, well, yeah. so has everybody else in this room. <laughs> you know, True. It, it, yeah. It's, but to what degree and, and what exactly we're talking about. And I realize that when, we're, when, when those things then have to be articulated in front of uh, the entire church, um, there needs to be some care in, in our words. That's probably not going to be the the place to get into every icky detail of you know if if I'm if I'm struggling with pornography and I'm going to yeah. you know get into every detail of that and saying that in front of the church I get that um, but certainly it, when we're one on one I really even think that passage in James when it talks about confessing your sins to one another you know it it calls for an honesty and a transparency that probably is not really even meant to be talking about during the invitation song of right. the church. It's more <laughs> yeah. about brother to brother or Amen. sister to sister. Um, that that needs to be a place where I can just lay all my cards out on the table. And and, and that's when the true, um, just the, 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 the purifying ourselves and the cleansing comes when we're able to just be totally honest about those things and not, you know, do half-truths or rearrange versions of the truth or most of the truth with certain other things left out of it. Um, yeah, those are all points, and, and and I appreciate you saying it because I certainly don't I don't want anybody to to think that you know I'm I'm trying to say some nice stuff about this guy. Claudius Lysias is not the paragon of virtue that we need to be, you know, making our moral compass calibrated by. Uh, don't do yeah. that. Um, but you're right, and there is kind of just a good general point here to 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 be made about um, truth and and honesty and dishonesty. Yeah. Well, side note here, probably number 37 of the episode, but um, we, you know, the, what you were talking about, James 5, about being willing to confess to each other, you know, more of a one-on-one -on -one thing. I think that's something that we don't do enough of. Yeah. I think that, you know, if, and I'm, I'm speaking to individual people here right now, if you don't have someone that you feel comfortable enough with to to go to and confess things and talk about what you're struggling with and what you need help with, we need to find somebody. Yeah, um, like everybody needs that. Every um, every David needs a Jonathan. Yeah, Amen. And so, and we need to be that for someone. Yep. Don't be the type of person who will will gossip about things or sometimes we paint it in the in the light of. Uh, you know, well, let me just ask someone else what they think I should do in this situation, yeah. or let me ask someone else if they have noticed something. That's just an underhanded way to gossip. We need to be careful about right. that. Right. 
Um, but we do need to, to build strong relationships with people and have those connections that we can make so that we can, we can confess things and, and get it out in the open um, so that we can be what we need to be. Um, and yeah, I totally get uh, Claudius Lysias here was not, that wasn't his goal and purpose yeah. uh, in this. And so as worldly people go, yeah. you know, um, you know, we we could take some good examples of, of people of the world that do good things. Yeah, um, he's definitely he's definitely having to do some verbal gymnastics here, uh, and yeah. and again, to, to, back to your point, you know, when we have relationships with others where we can just be transparent and honest, we don't have to do all that kind of mental gymnastics and you yeah. know remember what I said to this person and how did I need to say this and all that sort of stuff. And just be honest and just be. Um, you know, transparent the way the Lord wants His people to be. Um, so He sends this letter to Felix. Gonna gonna send him to Felix, verse thirty-one. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, they took Paul and they brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. It seems to be indication that all right, we're kind of in the clear as far as you know areas where the, some of the Jews would have you know strongly you know tried to grab a hold of Paul. So verse 33, when they then had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And so we're left with, um, once again, another cliffhanger um, (laughs) as Paul has been brought to the next uh, place where he will give a uh, maybe not. Well, there'll be a defense aspect to this, but Paul's also going to turn this into to evangelism opportunity number whatever he's up to now, <laughs> um, as he gets an opportunity to to you know do some strong preaching here uh, for for the word of God. Um, what do you want to say about the remainder of chapter twenty three? Well, I, I just I appreciate the details here, and, and we we get to see. You know how Paul moves from one place to another, and um, how God is absolutely protecting him. I mean, you, you think about okay, there were forty people who took that oath, and so Claudius Lysias sent four hundred and seventy to protect him along the way. Yeah. Then when he got out of the danger zone, he still had those seventy horsemen that mm-hmm. were following him. I, I mean, um, that was so, obviously God doesn't need people. Uh, in order to to protect, you know, he could do whatever. Yeah. But I think this is a visual sign. He's giving that to Paul, so Paul could see. Listen, I I'm protecting you. I'm yeah. with you. And so um, sometimes I think we we don't have. Well, I got to be careful. How I say this. We can see God working through physical means, and like like we said before. And so. Um, I think we need to be more thankful um, for the physical things that we see in our lives, how we see how God pr- provides for us, protects us, uh, and that sort of thing, um, because you know he, he works in so many different ways. So we need to be aware of that, um, and, and that, that's part of that. But also always being ready. Uh, I mean, Paul is, is definitely a good example of that. Well, I want to go back to what you just said about this is... This is the Lord really kind of showing us uh, that it's not just about word, but it's also about deed. You know, I think about what's said in um, 
James that we're to love not just in, in, in word but in deed and in truth. And mm-hmm. God does that as well. All right, he had given Paul words of assurance, take courage, but now in, in deed I'm going to then show you some things that will enable you even more to do that take courage thing. And um, I just, that's just a, something I'd never really thought about before and your, your thoughts kind of helped uh, lead me to that, that God, again, He didn't ask us to do anything that He Himself isn't, isn't going to do uh, and is willing to do uh, on our behalf. Um, well, I said this is a bad place to end chapter 23, but maybe it's not because I've just noticed here at the beginning of chapter 24, verse 1, it says, after five days. So it's going to take five days for these accusers to come to uh, Caesarea to be able to, you know, have this this hearing. And so... Um, we're going to take more than five days. We'll take seven days before you <laughs> next hear us again when we talk about Acts the 24th chapter. But I do look forward to talking about Acts 24 next week and about Paul's interactions with uh, Felix and uh, the responses that uh, the fallout of, of that particular interaction. Anyway, thanks for listening once again, and we'll look forward to next week. Let's keep studying.